You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. After years of working with the famed Black Star Photo Agency, Steve Winter began shooting for the National Geographic Society in 1991. He specializes in wildlife photography, particularly the world's big cats. He's been named the BBC Wildlife Photojournalist of the Year, and he's a two-time winner of the Picture of the Year International Global Vision Award. In 2013, National Geographic published his book, Tigers Forever, Saving the World's Most Endangered Cat. And in 2016, he joined us to discuss his series, Ghost Cats, and today, fresh off winning a World Press Photo Award for his National Geo story, The Tigers Next Door, Steve joins us to discuss this important and timely topic. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Just to summarize for our listeners, this story, which was written by Sharon Guyanup and published in December 2019 issue of National Geo, is about tigers living in captivity in the United States. And whether that be in sanctuaries as part of a local roadside attraction or a petting zoo, uh, it's estimated that between five to 10,000 tigers live in captivity in the United States alone. And if you think about it, there's only about 3,900 wild tigers that exist in their natural habitats throughout the world. So there's a real big discrepancy here about what's real and what's not real. Let's get right into the conversation. Um, you've been involved in this for over 15 years now, and you're known for your photos of big cats in the wild, often using remote camera traps. Uh, this story is much more about people than it is, or as, as much about people as it is about cats. Can you speak a bit about the Thailand Tiger Temple, which is kind of a frightening place, uh, and how that got you to this American story? Well, it's great uh, that you saw that connection. Um, I was working on National Geographic's magazine last tiger story that I did, you know, over a couple of years. And uh, I was wanted to work on subspecies. So I did the Sumatran tiger. Then I went to Thailand and work with the Thai tiger team. And while I was there, I would ask them, hey, I hear about this place called the Thai tiger temple. And uh, they always said, Steve, don't go, don't go. And the easiest way to get me to do something is tell me not to do it. So, uh, okay, let me, why are they telling you not to go? Because they didn't think that you'd like what you're seeing or, be, or, or for that they were just so dead against what's going on. there. what was the, why I think that, that they were just so dead against what, okay. what was happening there because they were breeding cats, um, 300 and, and that, that was my foundation of all this. I said, why shouldn't I go? And they said, well, we think they're involved in the black market trade, but nobody can prove it. And it was like, well, why? And tell me a little bit, how many tigers do they have? And they said, well, they always have 150, and, but every day you can pet cubs or bottle feed cubs. And I'm like, hold it. Common sense dictates that if you're breeding something, that means you're going to have more of that something, whether it's dogs, cats, cows. I don't care what it is. But, um, so, uh, I'm going to go and they went, oh, you shouldn't go, blah, blah, blah. They always say they're involved in conservation, but we won't take any of their money. And so 
that was the bottom line was the breeding aspect. Because if you can pet a cub 365 days a year, that means you're going to have more than 150 cats. So to me, that just put up a red flag that something fishy was going on. So I was there for four days um, and uh, got a picture that was, uh, you know, uh, a major picture in the tiger story of entertainment with these tigers that had been drugged. Um, No one ever, you know, actually came out and said we did a blood test and found raw opium in their system, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Investigator, uh, who actually was in Bangkok, and lives in Bangkok, um, because it's such a hub for wildlife trafficking, told me that. Because it's like you can't have a 400-pound animal and pick up its head and put it in a tourist lap without it turning around and biting their head off, literally. Come on. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years later, my partner of over 30 years, Sharon Gynop, who's a Nat Geo explorer, Nat Geo writer, and fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She was contacted by a, a, a NGO in Australia run by one woman called Sea for Life is the name of it. And she said she had undercover footage and information that could prove if we could get it, the information to the government that they were involved in trafficking. And that's what we're interested in doing with these stories is not advocacy journalism, but giving people the information they need, teaching them through images and words that this is the situation uh, currently. And Sharon never gave up. We did one story. I did the video. They put a seven hundred and a half minute video on Sharon's story on that geo dot com in January she wrote three more stories and by June they had enough information that the army and police went in, confiscated all hundred and sixty four tigers and what they found was a horror story because it's like, come on. The people were saying, Oh, monks wouldn't do this. Greed and power corrupts, even with monks. And a lot of these people were part of gangs in uh, Bangkok, and they were just hiding out in this monastery, I found out. (laughs) So uh, that led us to this, because it was the first time I'd ever photographed captive animals. So it was very different for me as a photographer. So was this story. (laughs) That's something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, given that, you know, the goal or the motivation anyway, is to kind of provide evidence. Um, did that change the way you photographed? Uh, did you did you think differently in terms of the images you're trying to create? I think that was different for me, but I had to like look at all the experience that I've gained. I always call it the University of National Geographic, that you're thrown into the field doing something that you proposed because most of us photographers propose our stories. Um, And you take all that experience and put it together and go, how can I be successful at doing something where primarily you have cats behind cages? I'm used to them being in the wild and you're looking for incredible behavior. You put up camera traps to get about 10% of your pictures that you would never be able to get any other way or you die. 
um, because you're that close to these animals, you just wang a wide angle lens. You put all that together, and even then, because we were concerned about some of these owners and how we thought they would view us coming in and whether they would, uh, through their um, illegal grapevine, say, hey, watch out for these Net Geo people, we wouldn't be allowed into a lot of the places that at first we went in as tourists. If anybody would have asked us, what are you doing? And for me, it was just one camera, one lens. Um, I, I would tell them because we're, you know, well, I'm not going to, we don't lie um, at Nat Geo about what we're doing, but not one person ever asked me. But guess what? Because of that and not being able to do what I needed by walking in the door and go, hi, I'm Steve Winter from National Geographic. And they're like, because they all have huge egos, they're like, oh, great, do whatever you want. And you're like, what? Do whatever I want. But in the beginning, I failed. I wasn't getting the images because it was too incredibly difficult to get what you needed with no access, to see the cats and the tourists together, to go into the homes of the private owners and things like that. I had to eventually, and what I did was I went for the gold and uh I called up when I finally got to the point I have to tell people who I am. I called up Doc Antle down in Myrtle Beach, which anybody that saw Tiger King on Netflix knows. You know, he's a very unusual man, uh, to say the least, and the biggest <laughs> breeder in the United States. And nobody knows what's going on. That's the bottom line with U.S. Tigers. Most people go, well, between five and 10,000, how come you don't know? Because there's no way these people are going to tell you because it's not, I mean, moving cubs across state lines is illegal, but there is no enforcement. And they're not going to tell me what's going on. So we don't even know. So they will open the door a little bit for you and you can put one foot through, but then better get out because it's going to slam right on you. And that's as far as you're going to get, you know, with Doc, you know, we ended up spending like nine days with him. My son was my assistant. And uh, this idea of shooting as a, as a tourist or just a regular attendee uh, and then, you know, I guess changing tax to just introduce yourself as a a Nat Geo photographer, was that something that was kind of catching you up mentally or do you think, was it really just about the access that you were then granted? No, it was mentally, I was a wreck because the pictures, you know, I, I wasn't getting what was needed. I knew that I needed to, to be who I was, which was, hi, I'm Steve Winter from National Geographic. And, you know, I need to stay till 10 o'clock at night so I can get these cats on the perches at a, quote, sanctuary. Uh, with the full moon in the background, because with the spot stroke, I had a, you know, pro photo B10 and a softbox. I mean, you're always looking for different ways of shooting things. I know in a lot of cases with documentary work, the subjects are kind of blind to what what's going on a little bit, because maybe often because of ego or they just think they're so right in what they're doing. Did Doc and, and the other people you, you, you photographed, did he have a sense? I mean, did you have to kind of I don't know, I don't want to say hide your, your feelings or, or how did that dynamic work 
when when you're telling one story and he's thinking you're telling a different story? Well, we won't lie. And so he's going to say something that's totally off the wall. Uh, I don't need to respond in a positive or negative way. Um, I can just be totally neutral or change the subject when he starts talking about ligers, let's say. And that's a cross between a lion and a tiger or a tigon, which is a tiger and father and a mother lion. They have all these crossbreeds that all these people like doing because they get so big. What did I do when he said, well, in India, lions and tigers live together? Well, they're not together now. The gear lions are not close to any tigers. And species don't normally mate ever outside of their own species. So, you know, because tigers and lions don't live together, but leopards and lions do. Do you ever see leopards meeting with lions? No. Do you see leopards being killed by and eaten by lions? Yes. So you're not being untruthful. You're just, you know, moving the conversation in another direction. Something I'm curious about, the numbers staggered me. The uh, uh, amount of money spent every year on illegal poaching of endangered species and one of the largest importers of these endangered species is China. Does the, uh, the government of China recognize the problem? Well, look at the ivory ban. We wouldn't have uh, elephants by 25 or 30 if it wasn't for guys like Yao Ming and, and other men and women that are pop movie stars, sports stars in China that do public service announcements via places like Wild Aid, IFA up in Massachusetts, EIA, Environmental Investigation Agency in London that are blanketing all over China. Every media, even your ATM, you go to the ATM, you see one of these PSAs with guys like Yao Ming who played for the Houston Rockets, Jackie Chan. Those are the kind of people that we know, but there's a lot of others that are true heroes. Yao Ming, he's helped push through the ivory ban. He started with shark fin soup, don't eat shark fin soup. What you need to do is change the demand for this and young people in china that with access to the internet have no desire to use endangered species products and they they know from uh the media that there is no medicinal value to like rhino horns it's primarily the wealthy that are using tiger products and other things as status symbols when you talk about these markets in China, they're probably, they, you have to say that they're wildlife wet markets because a wet market is just a supermarket. It's got fresh meats, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, fresh seafood, but then they also have wild animals in cages stacked up on each other. And as my wife calls it, it's like a petri dish. Um, and these and so many diseases have come out of there, zoonotic diseases. Um, from animals to humans because we're cutting down. In the last century, half of the forest and the world have been cut down. We're much closer to these animals than we should be. I mean, look where Ebola comes from, bats, uh, SARS, uh, avian flu from birds. uh, And now we have COVID-19 that came from one of these markets. We, We talk about conservation. Well, now we have another reason 
to conserve the forest, though we've always had incredible reasons, because without them, we won't exist. I, I want to go back to some photo questions, but now that we're here on the subject of COVID a bit and, you know, the, the the larger issue of the shutdown that we're seeing around the world, do you have anything to say regarding that and trafficking and, and poaching? Is this something that uh, the people that work on these issues are, are already kind of seeing a change in what's going on, whether for the good or for the bad? Well, I think in the end, we were very happy when we heard about the Chinese government um, shutting down these markets, but when they allowed them to reopen, people talked about, oh, they're reopening wet markets. That's terrible. You have to realize what they are. So if you read a caption on my Instagram at Steve Winter Photo, it says wildlife wet markets because you need to make the distinction and not just go wet markets are terrible. No, they're just like our farmer's market or a supermarket when you're in the produce, fruit, meat, or seafood aisle. It's fresh things. They're wet. But it's the wildlife part when you get into that. Do you know how much these markets are worth in China? Because they farm so many of these animals, over $60 billion. There's articles that have just come out about that. So if the government's going to do it like they did when they helped save elephants by putting an ivory ban, though there's no ivory ban in Hong Kong, um, they would need to specifically target these wildlife markets. But then you would need to find other jobs for these people that actually have such a huge industry of farming wild animals inside China. So we need to really be aware of what we're dealing with. And we don't want this to happen again. And it's going to happen again. That will keep happening unless we stop all the cutting of forests for like palm oil is a perfect example. You know, and it's really big in the Western Hemisphere. And a lot of people don't know that if you go down to Central and South America now. And when you hear about the Amazon being cut, you don't hear that a lot of it's cut for palm oil or soybeans or something else, like the northern part of the Pantanal that I've done a lot of work in because of jaguars. Um, when I did the first jaguar story, nobody went down there to see jaguars. It was just a fishing place. And we had a couple pictures published in that geo, and now it's the one place you could see jaguars. And there's a huge industry, and no one would ever kill a jaguar because a new study just showed that they bring in, each jaguar brings in about $110,000 every year. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about that? Where like you covered sanctuaries as well in the States for tigers who, who are, I imagine, you know, in your opinion, doing good work and they make money off of tourism. Yeah. So you want positive stories. People have asked me questions on Instagram and stuff like that. You have to realize that there's these roadside zoos like Joe Exotic was, Jeff Lowe still is, he's trying to build that other one, or Doc Anton, some of these others. And then there's sanctuaries. One would not exist without the other. And it's the good sanctuaries that need to exist because of this constant breeding for cub petting. Now that is slowly being eroded because most places won't allow that to happen, like in malls, Joe exotic used to go to malls and things like that. Well, as soon as that's advertised, it's shut down by local animal rights groups. But these sanctuaries are just so vitally important to bring in animals, give them good vet care, and keep them for life. No hands-on touching by the public. They allow the public to come in in many instances because 
they need a way to keep these animals alive in great cages. The bigger the cage, the better, so they have a good life and great vet care because many of them come in with many problems. You know, a lot of these cubs that you saw in Tiger King, they're being taken away at birth. And they don't have proper nutrition. So bone and joint-wise, they have major problems throughout their lives. Do you think they get dental care and they eat crappy food? You know, we were we photographed and filmed a, a dental thing with the Peter Emily Foundation. They came from Colorado and Indiana. And there were some cats that needed four root canals. And, you know, a couple of them were done in a day. But they cycled one cat out of the other. These good sanctuaries are vitally important, and I work with some really good ones like the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Colorado, um, which is the largest sanctuary in the world. And there's two places there, one north of Denver and one in the southeast. It's just just for animals, no tourism. It's 10,000 acres. Uh, Turpentine Creek in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Uh, lions, tigers, and bears. There's good places they didn't show in Tiger King. Something I wanted to ask you about, what they describe as the shelf life for these cubs is actually quite short between the times that they're born and everybody can go, oh, so cute, and pet them and pose with them before they become big cats that you can't go next to. And that's only a matter of a few months. Is that correct? Yeah. um, In fact, James Gerritsen, he was the first guy that let us in, and he did cub petting, and so we went in. (laughs) And at 12 weeks, I mean, it jumped on my partner, Sharon, and my stepson, Nick, and bit him. And this is a, you know, 12-week, 16-week-old cat. After that, they're too big to pet. And everybody goes, well, where do they go? And it's like they could be sold or, or they could be euthanized, as Joe did. And there's this dark underbelly where you don't know what happens. And you're never going to get an answer because who's going to say except some dude like Joe um, that he actually shot these animals. They can't feed them because if it costs $10,000 a year to feed one of these cats, a lot of these places are going to go out of business and these cats are going to end up in true sanctuaries, which is good. A lot of roadside zoos, and I saw this at the Tiger Temple in Thailand, have the word conservation in big letters. We are conserving cats in the wild. No, you are not. A lot of places say they're rehab facilities. The only thing they're rehabbing is the owner's bank account. There's never been one captive bred tiger ever released successfully back into the wild. Not back in the wild, because they were never in the wild in the first place, into the wild. Something I want to mention about the strength of these cats, just from personal experience, not that I have a lot of it, but uh, a million years ago, uh, there was Great Adventure here in New Jersey. And when right. it opened up back in the 70s, I photographed all of the original construction and I, and I was their first photographer. And I spent a lot of time in their safari park, which was an eye opener. Um, and one of the days that I was there, I was in the tiger area and I was given a a little cub of a Siberian tiger that was only a couple of weeks old. It was about the same size of a regular house cat, but bulkier. Uh, The claws on this thing were phenomenal. And even though this was a cute little kitten, when it sank its claws into me, I felt it. 
<laughs> and it was it was it was it was playfully teething on my arm, and it did break the skin with teeth that were barely through the gums. So, and this was a kitten. Now, I cannot imagine the strength of these things when they get twice the size, three times, ten times the size, or up to what seven, eight hundred pounds. This is serious strength we're talking about. If this little kitten can draw blood, I can't imagine what these big ones do. A hundred percent. Yeah, a lot of people saw that video. It was on Nat Joe's Instagram and my Instagram of that cat jumping me. This was a cat that came from Joe Exotics, and uh, it was a Tigon. So mix, it was two hundred eighty pounds. If that cat put its claws out and really came after me, I would have been in big trouble. This cat was just playing, you know. And I knew it because when I'm photographing cats, uh, I get real low because I want to look up with them or have this eye-to-eye view. And I would say, hey, it's going to come at me because I'm getting low and it looks like I want to play like a a dog or a cat gets low and their back end goes around the tail's wagon. Then they fly through the air. Well, that's just exactly what this cat did. But it was flying at me. You know, I was very, very lucky. With these big cats, I started finding first responders that are like, hey, you know, we've seen what happens when a hurricane comes through South Texas. We went into a house and a lion came at us in the southern part of Texas, went into a, a abandoned church in the north part, and we opened the door and a tiger came at us. And so they're the ones that are really behind this Big Cat Public Safety Act. And we don't ever think about that. You never would. I mean, it's like the guys are saying, we didn't sign up for this to shoot a lion that's running down the road or shoot a tiger. So you have no choice but to just take them down, essentially. Right. You have to take them down. But what happens when these guys open the door like they did? So the men and women that are doing this are really in danger and they need help. So there were so many different aspects to this story. And I was really honored that World Press gave me an award again because I won first prize nature story for snow leopards, first prize nature story for tigers. And now second prize in contemporary issues. So because the important thing about contest is that it gets the story out to other people that would never have seen it in any other way. I mean, Tiger King helped also, but uh, World Press exhibition, though now, obviously, the exhibitions are not going to happen on the same time frame or at all. But, you know, usually it gets out to millions more people. So your story has such a longer life. It's really important and it's honored to be recognized along with all these other great photographers. Steve, something I'm curious about. Yes, you won this award, which is, is nothing to sneeze at and it's quite commendable. Can you point to anything concrete as far as real changes that have occurred because of the work that you've been doing over the past couple of years that you could point to saying, that's because of what we've been doing. That's because of my photographs of the work that uh, uh, we've we've done together here. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, that that's a very important question. You know, it all started with jaguars. Nat Geo had never done the jaguar story before, and I was able to find a place to go see them. I went down there. Two pictures were published from this area that only had sport fishermen that were from within Brazil. 
and with two pictures in Nat Geo, tourism started coming into the area. And like I said earlier, now each Jaguar in that area brings in $110,000 every year in ecotourism income. So none of those ranchers that were originally killing every Jaguar they saw when I went down there 20 years ago would ever harm a hair on the head because they're economically important to the area. On Snow Leopard, we started a couple of, of projects that were community-based because I always say people need to benefit from living with predators. And one of the ones that I was most proud of because they're putting up predator-proof corrals like they call them BOMAs in Africa, um, I found that a bunch of the communities were losing 30% of their livestock to disease. And I had been at the USAID office in Delhi and got a bunch of hoof and mouth vaccine. You give this to these people, start a program for three years. If they lose 30% of their livestock, then they're getting 30% more money in their pocket as long as they promise not to kill snow leopards. You do this, then they take it over. Uh, P-22, the Hollywood Cougar, now they're going to build the largest wildlife overpass in the world, you know, 12 miles north of L.A. at Liberty Canyon. It's got a permanent exhibit, the L.A. County Natural History Museum. And that was a picture that took me 15 months to get the picture of the mountain lion with the Hollywood sign. But now they're building this overpass, which is going to save all the animals that are in the largest urban park in the United States, which is right north of L.A., south of Oxnard, east of the 101, west of Malibu. When you see something like that happen, when you have a picture that you take that ends up on the cover of the LA times, you see a conversation start immediately. You know, you get a couple of pictures that really make a difference. And so you start looking at things that can make a difference that start a conversation. Um, after the tiger temple closure, we saw that real tangible things can come from this when you give people the information to act. Regarding what's going on here in the States to some degree, I'm getting the sense that the federal government is less a player and there seems to be a battle between, you know, the activists and, and the breeders, whether they're, you know, legal, illegal or not. Is, is that kind of what it is? I mean, where's the science community on this? I'm curious too. Well, they, a lot of them don't get involved in this. You will find that science organizations or conservation organizations won't ever enter into this because they're not wild animals. But it's like, well, if we can get this information out and maybe then we hear that there's a big cat public safety act that's passed. But now everything has changed right now because we're involved in this difficult time with the virus. Obviously, nobody's thinking about big cats right now and they shouldn't. But in the future, it will come back on the radar and the information that we ha have gotten can be then used and they can make a decision on what they want to do in Congress about this. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, bringing us up to speed on what's going on with these uh, big cats and the efforts that you've been making successfully to try to get this problem uh, under control. It's a big undertaking to say the least. If people would like to see more of your work, where can they go? Well, they can check my Instagram out at Steve Winter Photo. It's the same as my website, stevewinterphoto.com. 
And you can always check out at Nat Geo Instagram also. I only have one book, which is called Tigers Forever. Okay. Saving the world's most endangered big cat. We've, we're working on it, two others right now, so stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Uh, Steve, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us, and again, be safe out there. And you all also. Thanks again for having me. Take care now. Okay, that's a wrap of another show. And again, it's a different time, a different day that we're living in. My name is Alan Weitz, and on behalf of John and Jason, be safe, be sensible, be careful, and God bless. <laughs>